From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today, we're talking about a blood disorder called sickle cell disease. With me in the HealthLink on Air studio is Dr. Katherine Scott. She's the director of the Pediatric Sickle Cell Program at Upstate, and she's here with one of her colleagues, child psychologist Jill Majeski. Thank you to both of you for being here. Thanks Thank for you. having us. Now, the Pediatric Sickle Cell Program at Upstate sees patients from birth to age 21 with any form of sickle cell. Uh, what is sickle cell, and what are the forms of sickle cell that there are? I'll take that one. Okay. Uh, so sickle cell disease is an inherited disease of red blood cells. Um, <clears throat> it's caused by a genetic mutation in the DNA code to make hemoglobin. Hemoglobin is the main protein inside red blood cells. And with that DNA change, it creates a differently shaped hemoglobin, uh, which promotes sickling of the red cell. That means that a polymer or a stick forms on the inside of the red cell that changes the whole red cell shape and those changed red cells stick together and block blood vessels and therefore cause uh, the symptoms of the disease. So since it's hereditary, do you find out that you have it at birth? Yes, uh, sickle cell disease is screened for on the newborn screen, which every state conducts, and it is on the newborn screen of every state today. Um, so you find out at birth and then you come see me uh, uh, by about age two months and we start treatment then. And is it does it uh, affect male and female the same? Equally. Equally. What are the signs and symptoms? Um, well, the first thing that most patients deal with with sickle cell uh, tends to be um, fevers from increased risk for infection. Uh, so we put kids on penicillin starting at age two months to prevent bacterial infections. Uh, the next symptom and sort of the hallmark of sickle cell as a chronic disease is chronic pain, and that can begin as early as four months of age, and so we have to treat pain in those individuals. Does having sickle cell predispose someone to getting other illnesses and infections? It definitely predisposes you to infection because the sickling of the red cells damages your spleen, and your spleen is required for proper prevention of infectious disease, including bacteria in your bloodstream, so they're at high risk for bacteria in their bloodstream. What about in terms of limiting a person's activity or even their lifespan? Well, the sickling of the red blood cells causes chronic organ damage and uh, also causes chronic pain. So it definitely limits the activities that kids can do due to the pain. Um, it also is a disease that requires a lot of medical attention, so frequent doctor visits, frequent tests, pictures of their organs, imaging, um, as well as, unfortunately, frequent hospitalizations, uh, which take them out of their day-to-day -day life. Since it, you said it's hereditary, if a person has sickle cell, does that mean if they have children, their children will have it? Um, so it, it means their children are at higher risk for it. So you need two copies of the genetic change in order to have the disease. If you only have one copy, that's called sickle cell trait, and that doesn't lead to the symptoms of the disease that we mentioned. So um, if both of your parents carry the change and they both pass it to you, then you have the disease. More commonly, in fact, really commonly, about 1 in 12 African Americans in this country carry the sickle cell trait. Um, and uh, if you carry that, you can pass it down to your child. Okay. Well, before we get into the treatments that are available for sickle cell, I wanted to get information about how the sickle cell program involves families. So, Jill, can you talk a little bit about why it's important for people with sickle cell to know and interact with others who have the disease? Sure. Um, 
Well, I think it's really important to understand that sickle cell is not only a medical condition, but it's a biopsychosocial disease, meaning that there's the medical piece like Dr. Scott has spoken about, um, but then the psychosocial piece includes a lot as well, and that includes family. So things like um, parents, um, it's really challenging for parents to do all the things that they need to do um, to help their children when they have chronic pain, um, which a lot of our patients do have, um, as well as just needing to kind of do all of the medical pieces like come to the clinic for visits and come to the hospital. Um, and it requires really a lot of support amongst the family. Um, but we've also learned that these families really are hoping for a connection with other families to kind of relate and have that shared experience and support. Um, because sickle cell really does affect the entire family in multiple aspects. So you mentioned um, medical visits. Is it uh, how frequently do you usually see patients for this? Well, it depends on the patient um, and their disease type. Some patients come every three to six months, um, and some of them come more frequently. It could be weekly for a while, just depending on how they're doing. Um, and then there could be hospital stays? Yeah, as well. There are definitely hospital stays. Uh, recently, we've had quite a bit of uh, patients who have been admitted for um, complications due to sickle cell pain episodes, acute chest syndrome. Yeah. So that must impact um, their schooling. Yes. If they're not able to go to school, mm -hmm. um, and then the ripple effect on all the other family activities that mm -hmm. they're not part of, right? Yes, exactly. And we're really fortunate to have a very comprehensive multidisciplinary team um, in our sickle cell program. So all of the members of our team are able to kind of address all of these pieces to support not only the patient, but the entire family. Um, what are the members of the multidisciplinary team? Uh, so we have a lot. Uh, we have Dr. Scott and myself. Um, we also have... Uh, so physician, child psychologist. Yes. So we have a primary nurse for sickle cell. Um, we have a social worker, a child life specialist, um, an educational liaison, and a care manager who uh, works for Hillside um, Children's Health Homes, who's actually affiliated with us and comes to um, our clinic to see and work with our patients to make sure that they're receiving the care that they need from outside of the hospital, which is incredibly beneficial um, in making sure that these kids get what they need. Now, what about socializing, social activities and socializing? Um, so one of the things that we have done most recently um, in early November was our first Thriving Together event. Um, so we called it Thriving Together, Starring Kids with Sickle Cell. Um, so this was a family event. Um, we wanted it to be inclusive for families, and it was completely created by patient and family feedback about what they would hope for if they could come together with their families and meet other families. Um, so for this particular event, we had uh, we held it in the Kinney Performance Center in the Children's Hospital, um, and we had a lot of activities. So we had dinner together, um, we had art activities, we had a photo booth, um, face painting, um, some education from Dr. Scott and myself, so about sickle cell um, and kind of treatments, prevention of problems. And then my piece is mostly focused on medical coping, so talking with kids and families about how they can really um, 
do their very best despite having a chronic illness um, and have the best quality of life possible. Um, so we actually had really great support from our whole multidisciplinary team that I mentioned, as well as the CARA Fund, uh, which is a local organization that supports kids with uh, serious illness. So a little bit, it sounds like a little bit of a support group kind of folded into uh, an activity. Yeah, okay. yeah, basically, yeah. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking about sickle cell disease with Dr. Katherine Scott and child psychologist Jill Majeski. I want to talk about the current treatments for sickle cell. Is there any way to prevent it, Dr. Scott? Um, no, there's no prevention that's used in a standard way at this time. I do know there's really interesting research going into um, fetus uh, investigation, and as early as mid-gestation uh, in pregnancy, they are testing for sickle cell and trying to do gene editing at that point. Um, so that is far in the future to be a standard treatment, but it's very exciting that uh, everyone is looking and paying more attention to sickle cell and how to prevent and certainly treat it these days. What do transfusions do? Um, transfusion is one of the major treatments that we use for sickle cell disease. Transfusion is when we give red blood cells from an uh, individual without sickle cell and transfuse them into a patient with sickle cell. Those transfused red cells do not carry the sickle cell change and therefore can dilute out the damaging effects of the sickled red blood cells in the patient. Uh, we use that pretty frequently, either on a regular monthly basis or as needed, depending on the severity. What is uh, hydroxyurea? Hydroxyurea is one of the most incredible advances in sickle cell care in the last 30 years. Um, let's see, it was approved by the FDA, I think, in 1998 for the use uh, for sickle cell disease. And it is a once-daily medication that patients start taking uh, at the age of nine months and uh, going forward indefinitely. And it promotes the production of a different healthy type of hemoglobin called fetal hemoglobin, which uh, does not sickle and therefore prevents a lot of the damage of sickle cell disease. So it doesn't do anything to the sickle cell, but it tries to introduce uh, cells that are not damaged. Yeah, it basically switches off production of the sickled hemoglobin and switches on production of a healthy hemoglobin called fetal hemoglobin, and therefore you have less of the sickling taking place. Wonderful. Well, let's talk about cures. Are there any cures for sickle cell? Um, right now, there are two ways to cure it. Um, one is standard that anyone can get depending on their disease type and uh, the medical decisions made. Um, and that's stem cell transplant. So if you have a donor that can give healthy stem cells that don't carry the sickle cell mutation, then uh, you can transplant them into the patient. Uh, and if it works and they survive, it is a cure. There is also an experimental technique uh, that's being looked at heavily right now called gene therapy. Uh, and that is an effort to actually edit the genes or the genetic code in a sickle cell individual to prevent sickling. Now, how successful are those cures? Are they, do they work for everyone? If, you, if they find someone who can be a donor, does, does it necessarily work? Um, if the setup is, in the, um, is best, then it really does have a high success rate. Greater than 90% of individuals who have the treatment can be cured, but that's very dependent on how severe their disease was prior to transplant 
who exactly is donating the donated stem cells. Ideally, it is a sibling of the patient that has a matched genetic code in different areas that we look at to be compatible. Um, but if you are a matched sibling donor um, the, and you're healthy going into transplant as the patient, um, it can be very successful. But uh, it's complicated and makes you immunocompromised for quite a while after that stem cell transplant occurs. Uh, and so it's not right for everyone. Well, I know you focus on pediatrics, but in November, the FDA approved a new drug for sickle cell disease for adults. Can you tell us what you know about it? Sure. Um, yeah, I think on November 25th, the FDA approved um, Veloxator um, or Voxelator. And that, uh, from what I understand, is a medicine that's given once daily by mouth, and it actually uh, interferes with the formation of that polymer inside the red cells, um, like the stick inside the red cell that makes it into the sickled shape, um, and therefore helps to increase the hemoglobin levels and keep the red cell healthy for longer. Uh, we don't have a lot of use uh, experience with using it in patients currently because it just uh, is newly approved. It's approved for children starting at age 12 years and up, and then in adults as well. So I know that we're going to start to offer it in our clinic and the adult clinic uh, for sickle cell is as well in the near future. Is it something that a person would take every single day? Yes, once daily. lifetime? Yeah, similar to hydroxyurea, I believe, and you can use it in combination with hydroxyurea. Because they do different things. Exactly, yep, and this uh, research that went into the approval for this new medicine uh, had patients that were already on hydroxyurea and then ad added the um, voxelator. Are these medications, the hydroxyurea and the new one that voxelator, <laughs> are they um, life-changing for people with sickle cell? Is it extending lifespan and is it reducing the pain? Well, um, that's an interesting question. Certainly it's life-changing. Um, we have a lot of experience with hydroxyurea. That's a much older drug, um, and it absolutely improves quality of life by decreasing uh, the rate of all the sickle cell complications, pain, acute chest, stroke, hospitalization. Uh, we have less experience with the new medicine, uh, so we have yet to see um, outside of research, how it's really going to impact patients, but there's a big hope that it will improve quality of life and extend life. That's been some good information. Thank you to Dr. Katherine Scott and child psychologist Jill Majeski from the Pediatric Sickle Cell Program at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.